So Shauna, last week we had a really great conversation about women's bodies and how they're perceived and what they get told to do and to wear and who gets to choose um, because there was just a lot of material um, in the Olympics (laughs) right now. Uh, But I feel like we didn't dive too deeply into the intersectional experience of women athletes. And I think we should do that this week. Absolutely. I think, uh, you know, we didn't get to talk as much about that intersection of race and where that comes in. And, you know, even as far as the coverage that we've seen of women and especially high performing women of color in particular, I think we have a lot more to discuss. We're not even going to get to all of it in this podcast, but let's try. I'm Dr. Shauna Payne-Gold, and I go by she, her, her pronouns. And I'm Dr. Lisa Ingefield, and I go by she, her, hers. Welcome to Unfazed, a podcast to disrupt your normal and challenge your brain to go the distance. So Lisa, last time we had a really great conversation about uh, centering a lot of Olympians, but we could go beyond that. Um, You know, Simone Biles was a big deal and has been a big deal and will continue to be one. Um, And, you know, just talking about choice and uh, the Norwegian women's handball team, their choices around, you know, their attire, what they can wear, what they can wear. And I think that whole term of improper clothing, that that just cracks me up every time I read it. I'm like, improper based on whose opinion here? I don't know. Right. Um, but it seems to be that women, especially women of color, get critiqued and get such a hard time from, once again, that court of, of popular opinion. And it just seems like the rules are written to continue to keep those women out of play. And maybe mm-hmm. I'm much more mm-hmm. sensitive to it. Maybe it's what, you know, coverage is brought to us by journalism and, and the media. But I, I think there's something to it. And I think we can articulate it pretty well here. But it's a lot. Yeah, I do think that we can't, we have to have the conversation about race and femininity, because a lot of what we talked about last week was um, critiques of this structural notion of femininity and what does it mean to be a woman and who gets to decide who is and is not feminine enough to perform in a women's category and then all of the crap that follows in terms of um, the way that you're interviewed, the way that you're respected, social media Mm -hmm. commentary, that sort of thing. And so, you know, in the United States context of, Obviously, there is a long history of women of color, particularly black women, being disrespected and harmed by a white construction of femininity and what that means. Mm -hmm. Um, And I do think that there are remnants of that today. And so I wonder whether the treatment of Simone Biles and her decision to step down from the Olympic team is um, affected by her racial identity, whether the Um, Mm -hmm. harshness of the critique that exists is in part due to her race. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I agree. Well, you know, let's go back because you're, you're bringing up some critique to mind in regards to Rio in 2016. Didn't the country give Gabby hell about lots of things, her hair, her, I mean, right. Yes. You remember that? You remember all that coverage, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so with 
So all of that, because I was recalling this when I was looking back at all of the, um, the, the gold medalists, especially the gymnasts, but going back, you know, how soon we forget how we treated her like crap around. And, and this came from lots of different directions. It came from, from, from white folks. Some of it came from women of color as well, where there was this critique on, you know, well, this is what her hair looks like, or why doesn't she have more makeup on, or, you know, all of these critiques of femininity. When I'm thinking to myself, I don't care if she shows up in an Angela Davis Afro, if she's bringing home the gold, then none of us have anything to critique. Her being there gives us no reason to critique unless you're a gymnast. And even then it's her body. And so, you know, I think we carry forward this tradition of critique and it seems to fall on women of color disproportionately because I don't think I've ever heard of a white woman being critiqued for hair or makeup. Maybe I missed it, but not in recent years. Yeah, I can't put my finger on it either, but I'm certainly not, um, you know, I haven't watched or listened or read every news article about women athletes, um, but certainly maybe there are a handful, but not to the same degree. I mean, it's so blatantly obvious in terms of the way that women of color are treated in the media as compared to white women when we're talking about sports and athletics, um, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm thinking with... Um, Serena Williams, right? So, um, you know, this is a great example of the ways in which there's disparate treatment for women of color um, and white women. And when we think about tennis, right? And it has a very (laughs) uh, long um, and enduring white history, a white male history. Um, And so, you know, Serena and her sister Venus kind of coming into that and disrupting mm-hmm. it absolutely mm-hmm. ruffled feathers, right? Mm-hmm. Of the white of the white tennis patriarchy. Um, mm-hmm. and they mm-hmm. paid a price for it. So, which was the um tournament that she was in where she wore the dark black um oh the cat suit? The cat suit. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. Let me let me look it up and see. I do remember that though. That was the wasn't that the compression suit that she wore after she gave birth to her daughter? I believe was so. Was that the one? Yeah, I think that's the one. Yep. Yep. The it was um US Open um in what 2000 it's been a while. Oh, tw- 2018. 2018 cuz her daughter is not that old. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, she wore it then and I believe it was banned. So after that, it was banned from the tournament. So wow, what? Well, yeah. because it was improper. Like I don't, I don't really understand that at all. But oh, um, yeah. yeah, you know. So, okay, so you've got a couple of things here with Serena, right? So um, Serena and her sister are breaking into a predominantly white sport, and they're really, really good at tennis. So that is yeah. a disruption. Um, yeah. And so you then likely had um critiques of their womanhood is my guess Mm -hmm. right because Mm -hmm. they're so good which is absolutely tied to race and then she has a child so kind of what might be considered the one of the central um Mm -hmm. indicators of someone who is a, a woman um I'm talking culturally in terms of narratives I don't necessarily believe that myself and then she's wearing this catsuit which was in part a compression katsu for right. blood clots and such right and mm-hmm. that's yes. not acceptable so yeah, yeah. damned mm-hmm. if you do damned if you, if you don't right exactly exactly and you know that's uh, and it's uh 
it's something that occurs for a lot of women, especially a lot of Black women, and we're not even going to get into the whole conversation, Lisa, around the disproportionate effects medically on Black women having children here. We're not even going to go there. Um, but Serena um, developed something similar to what I developed when she had blood clots. Um, she had a history of blood clots, and then she developed one after uh, giving birth uh, to her daughter, Alexis. And so, and it, it happens quite a bit, especially with Black women and Black women who have C-sections. So we have that in common. Um, and so, you know, she's had problems with that and even flying. So for example, my doctor told me for two years after my son was born, my oldest son was born to continue wearing compression socks on flights because that helps, you know, fight against the blood clotting. Right, right. And so the fact that she's a elite athlete that needs this as a medical condition, but yet it's banned and it's a problem. I'm like, come on now, Let, let's, you're, mm -mm, that, that's a bit too much. And part of me, you know, feels like, okay, this is the reason why she had to show up to what the Australian open pregnant and not tell anyone. And, and I see this happen in so many different fields and industries where you have to, or, or you feel the need to, maybe this is quote, code switching in some way, Lisa, where you end up having to hide your medical status or hide something about yourself when you're a mother or when you're, you're pregnant with a child, um, that you end up having to hide it because look how you're judged, like you said, damned if you do, damned if you don't in any direction. So she didn't say anything during the Australian Open, but when she did afterwards, it became a problem and the cat suit got banned. And I'm like, are you serious? The, yeah. Highly problematic. Yeah. And the judgment perhaps on her choosing to participate in a tennis match when pregnant. And I know yes, plenty. Yes, well, yes. I don't know. I know of plenty of white women, athletes, triathletes as well, who have participated in Ironmans while pregnant, while early pregnant. Um, yes. You know, yes. and so that's a real problem. And then, then I also remember, I think Serena in particular has been castigated for being um, passionate on the tennis court, right? And being upset mm -hmm. about certain calls. And, you know, this is uh, an older issue, but, you know, John McEnroe, mm -hmm. right? Throws his tennis racket down and it's, you know, it's a meme now what he did, but he right. was not judged as harshly. And there are probably countless examples of that. I mean, didn't Novak Djokovic like get so mad that he hit a tennis ball and it hit a ball boy or something. I think he ended mm -hmm. up getting disqualified for that, but yeah. there wasn't any like major critique about his temperament as it relates to him being a top athlete. Right. It was right. just right. Um, talked right. away. Like he was just really passionate in the moment and he didn't mean to do it. Mm -hmm. um, but with yeah. Serena and other women of color, that is yeah. generally not the response. Um, mm. And it, it all comes back down to this kind of construction of womanhood and what does it mean to perform femininity and what it means yes. to perform femininity in an acceptable way is defined mm. and constrained by whiteness. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and, and we even saw that even with some of the coverage of Serena's catsuit, there was another woman who wore, and I'll have to look her name up, but she wore an all white catsuit before that and it was it was critiqued just because of people thought it was just a poor fashion choice, but no one said it should be disqualified. But because Serena has the body that she has, she has, in, especially in the Black community, most Black people that you would ask about Serena's body would say, oh my God, her body is incredible. Um, that plays into it. 
So if you have a curvy body type, if you have a type, a body type, especially for black women who are, who are already over-sexualized, then it becomes a problem. And so once again, it's like, wait a minute, do, is it my problem that I naturally have cleavage or is it your problem that you are distracted by it? Because this is how I naturally have developed and grown over time. And so therefore, this is not my problem. This is who I am and my identity. So why is the onus of your distraction, attraction, (laughs) or disdain, why is that my problem? Because this is naturally who I am. We see this with women of color and their bodies, their hair, all of it that comes natural that all of a sudden it's a problem. Whereas someone Mm -hmm. with a different body type that may or may not be as attractive to certain people in the world, all of a sudden it's, it's not a problem for them, but it's a problem for someone who looks like Serena. Right. It's, it's white discomfort, isn't it? Um, Oh yes. You know, and I think it's not just white male discomfort. I think it's white female discomfort and I think they're different. Um, And Oh, yes. You know, and I think about, so I'm thinking, this is making me think about Casta Semenya and the number of other African women oh. who have been yeah. banned from competing in the Olympics because of their um, differences in sexual development and their higher levels of testosterone and how they have been told that the only way that they would be able to compete in their 400 meters to a mile, which are the races I think they've all been um, disqualified mm-hmm. from or banned from, is mm-hmm. if they have hormone shots, take birth control pills, or have surgery, surgery, like literally they're saying the IOC or the um, IAAF, the governing body is saying that the only way you can compete in this race that you are stellar at is if you have surgery. Like that's one of the options, like physically change your body. So Mm -hmm. it better fits into how we have defined femininity because then if you more closely fit this, um, narrative of femininity which is inherently white then we'll acknowledge that you're a woman um and so this it's the same for serena and it's the same for other in particular african and black women um who are harmed by these constructions and so i find it actually pretty appalling because we've we've used the michael phelps example before where he just has a naturally or genetically um Mm -hmm bigger feet and and kind of wingspan right and that gave him an advantage in the pool did anyone tell him that he need to surgically make his feet smaller (laughs) and surgically cut his arms down no they didn't they just said he was lucky and there are tons of other examples for that but uh you know to think that um you know casta and her colleagues have to you know either either drug induced change or physically induced change Mm -hmm. so they can compete so they can fit this narrow definition of womanhood it's pretty disgraceful. Um, and I was listening yeah. to an, M- an NPR piece and I forget who it was now, but it was a guy that does research around gender equity in sport. He's an academic. And he had said mm. that, you know, this is the Tokyo Olympics with an asterisk because there is a stain mm. on the Olympics because of the exclusion of these women, primarily, if not exclusively from the global South um, mm-hmm. related to how they um, do or do not fit into this notion of femininity. Um, so those policies are inherently racist is what I would argue. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, what I think is interesting is I'm always in this conundrum because for me, it is watching kind of what Castor Semenya's had to do and others where 
they spend so much time defending their right to just be, and they still excel. Yeah. You know, um, it, it's kind of reminds me, I don't know, Lisa, if you saw that meme around um, uh, privilege and the meme was saying something to the effect of a privilege is going to college and only having to think about schoolwork, right? And I almost feel like it's the same way with Olympic sport, mm, yeah. world, you know, at the point where you're a global force in your sport is it's a privilege to only have to think about your sport. So when you're the casters of your sport or the serenas of your sport, where you have to constantly defend your right to be while doing the sport, that's where I'm thinking, oh my God, these people are, they're, they're in a different echelon and, and higher than global because imagine how much better they could even perform if they did not have the stressor of, oh, I got to go to court or, oh, I have to have extra testing or I don't know when they're going to knock on my door and ask for another uh, blood sample or do another P test. And all of that is going on exponentially so for these women, especially women from the global South, but women of color that have disproportionately been targeted. And I'm going to use the language target because sometimes I feel like they're being used as an example Yeah, and, and they refuse to resist. Uh, they, they refuse to, to, um, to basically be a part of this systemic racism, sexism. And they're saying, no, we're not okay with the policy. We're not okay with the rule, et cetera. And so therefore we're going to fight in addition to being our best as an athlete. I feel like that's it's almost like a two for one. Like, you know, when people go to work and they're doing two jobs instead of the one they were hired for, I feel like those women are constantly mm-hmm. doing mm-hmm. two jobs and it's not okay. And yeah. just the privilege of just showing up. I mean, it's already enough pressure to show up to a Tokyo or show up to the Australian Open or show up anywhere and perform your highest level. Also with the understanding that you're going to be re- ridiculed before, during and after. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that kind of brings us and connects to the mental health conversation we had at the beginning of last week, right? In terms of the yes. pressure and the strain of being an elite athlete who is a mm-hmm. woman and who is a woman of color mm-hmm. is greater, right? And we have two examples among many, but Naomi Osaka and um, Simone yeah. Biles, obviously both women of color who um, have, you know, shared recently they're stepping back and it's a mental health right they want to protect their mental health and I'm sure I know that obviously there are many white women and men who experience the same pressure or rather similar pressure but to your point Mm -hmm. women of color athletes are dealing with a layer of sexism and Mm -hmm. a layer of racism right which is just going to up the ante in terms of that um, weathering or that stress that they're experiencing. Mm-hmm. And then also, and then kind of com- those two things combined, you have people externally saying, well, you're not a woman. Right. 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 So exactly. you don't, you don't just get to say you're a woman. Well, actually, yes, I fucking do. <laughs> so, exactly. You know? Actually I do. Right. Right. Exactly. Well, and you know, it, it gets into those checks and balances of that. That's exactly what power is though, Lisa, is that power is, Folks who have been making decisions for other folks for centuries and those, the athletes deciding they're going to resist that and say, actually, no, you don't get to make a decision whether I do four twists and 15 flips 
because I am Simone Biles and I get to determine what I do with my body. And so, you know, that's where the power is now being reclaimed. And I think especially so, and again, this is coming from a non-gymnast, a a non-elite athlete, a non-Olympian. So take my opinion for what little it's worth. I still feel strongly that once it gets to a place where athletes are, can severely endanger themselves and possibly others, this is when we need to have a critical conversation. So when, you know, Simone Biles and the twisties, for example, that's our biggest example of it. But, you know, we can see it in other corners of, um, with other athletes in other sports where there are some extremely dangerous sports. And the fact that an athlete would not be allowed to make their own decision about their livelihood and their safety, that's problematic for me. And so at what point do we take this unwarranted ownership, right? Like, like I feel like my ownership is when I choose to cheer and when I don't choose to cheer. But as far as an athlete's training, <laughs> an athlete um, actually competing, that is their choice. And I'm grateful that they get to do that because all I get to do is sit on my couch and eat donuts and, and watch like a lazy bum. And it's entertainment for me. But this is the livelihood for others, right? And so, you know, where do we or, or how do we step back from taking more power than we're entitled to? Because we're not entitled mm-hmm. to any power around this at all. We're watching yeah. this for entertainment. Right, right. Which is int- which is an interesting point, right? Um, because I'm thinking back to Isabel Wilkerson's um, book, mm. Case, and in there she makes a point about um, a large percentage of African-American individuals in the United States who are wealthy and successful are entertainers mm-hmm. because being an entertainer was one of the only acceptable roles for newly freed slaves mm-hmm. um, during Reconstruction. And right. so um, that that has hung over, right? So then I think about mm-hmm. the athletes um, whose bodies are policed most stringently um, you know, women of color, like we've talked about, um, and they, and to your point, right, they are entertaining us. And so then you have this pushback from, um, a lot of people, but a significant number of white people, certainly around Mm -hmm. you're there to entertain me. Right. 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 So you need to just get about and do what you're doing. And so I Mm -hmm. think that that is connected. Mm -hmm. Um, and then particularly critiques of, uh, black women, black women's bodies in particular, that has mm-hmm. everything to do with white supremacy and the history of sla- enslavement in this country. Oh, absolutely. Everything to do with it. And, and so we have all of that history that those women are bringing in. And then moving forward, let's think about, because you, you reminded me of the, um, the refugee Olympic team, for example, and some other teams um, from the global South that, Yes, some of them are bringing in that history because some of them are under the umbrella of the African diaspora. So they may have been, their ancestors may have been enslaved in other countries, et cetera. And so they're bringing that history in, they're competing, and many of them are competing with the weight on their shoulders of whatever winnings, endorsements, et cetera, because that may save an entire hometown 
or if the country mm. is small enough, it brings income to their country. Um, I remember the, um, I think it was the the weightlifter from the Philippines. She wasn't, uh, she was the first, I believe she was the first gold that the country's ever received, or maybe one of the first golds. Well, that comes with winnings. That comes with things that, you know, as far as endorsements and so forth, that literally changes at least their family's lives, but sometimes their entire hometown, sometimes their entire country's life, because they're bringing this income in. And so all of that weight together, I think it gets very interesting when you have that dichotomy of, I'm just sitting on the couch eating donuts, watching the Olympics, and there is no pressure or stress on me at all, other than I want you to entertain me, versus I literally have the weight of my entire country on my shoulders, quite literally. That's two different points of pressure. And, you know, for women of color, you know, I, I was watching, it was another podcast um, where we were talking about how in more affluent um, cultures, whether it's uh, white culture more broadly, or uh, this particular podcast talked about Jewish culture, um, where money trickles down from your generation to children, your children's children, et cetera, et cetera. In African-American communities and many African communities, that's not how it goes. Oftentimes it goes back. What happens when uh, an, an, NFL, an NFL player gets drafted or an NBA player gets drafted? They buy their mama a house. They buy their mama a car. They buy their dad, whatever. The, 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 the corner boys that bought them their first pair of cleats, they buy them you know, a car or whatever to thank them for their newfound NFL career. Most Black athletes or many Black athletes, I would say, reach back and they don't get the pleasure of reaching forward until they get to a certain point. Well, all of that is the weight that athletes and especially women, they carry with them in a different way because they feel responsible for their past, present, and future mm. family. Past, present, and future. Parents, grandparents, mm -hmm. your children, hopefully your children's children. And so with that, that's a lot of weight. And so you know, it, it kind of reminds me of that quote I saw on, on uh, Twitter, this was months ago, that said, um, I'm surprised that any Black person is mentally sound, given the stress that we're under on a daily basis, and then add the levels of being an elite athlete. Yeah, it's yeah. tough. Yeah. And then facing Beyond all of that tough. judgment and the decision, you know, someone else's decision that you get to play or you don't get to play based mm -hmm. on these um constructions right and then also thinking about marijuana and the use of marijuana and how that's still banned at the world level right even though at, su at the country level in many places it's now becoming yeah. more acceptable and is legalized in in a multitude right. of ways and yet that disqualifies right. people and we talked about Shakari Richardson um a few yeah. podcasts ago in relation to that but yeah. you know in yeah. the U.S. we can't avoid the fact that um marijuana mm -hmm. um arrests and um, convictions, you know, fall disproportionately on communities of color. And so yeah. that yeah. is a racist policy, right? And mm -hmm. so then, you know, what you get to wear or don't wear, you know, is sexist and potentially racist also, because we have to understand that our system is those things. And therefore the rules that it produces just emulate mm -hmm. those isms, yeah. unless there's an active intentional um, attempt to not do that. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so, yeah. So I'm, I'm, so that active attempt to not do that, that's exactly where I was going. And we don't have time to answer this question, but I think we need to twirl it around is 
how do we build anti-racist athletic organizations, whether it's the IOC, whether it's, you know, USAT, whether it's USA Swimming, pick an organization. How and when do we get to the place where we start using an anti-racist lens and anti-gendered lens to pick apart, kind of like cast, pick apart and rebuild these organizations in ways that see very clearly that women of color have been disenfranchised at an exponential rate. Women have been disenfranchised at a particular rate. At some point, we have to get to a place where we have this critical eye. And right now we're kind of doing it piecemeal. It's like, oh, a Castor Semenya comes up. What do we do? Oh, a Simone Biles comes up. What do we do? It's, and these are not case by case basis situations. They were created by systems that seem as if they're case by case, but it's an entire system that's producing mm-hmm. a problem concerning women of color. So it's not going to be solved until we start looking at all of these organizations using an anti-racist lens. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great point that it's a product of the system, not an individual thing. And I think what the people in the US want to do, people in power, white men in particular, want to individualize it. And we've talked about that before, that if you individualize it, then it takes us away from these larger problems that we have to fix. So, you know, on the list of to do in terms of answering your question or solving that problem is I want to have kind of the first one on that list to be burn it all down. How does that sound? <laughs> Let's do it. Burn it all down. Burn it all down. I'm with you. I'm with you. Burn, burn it all down. Hey, everyone. This is Dr. Lisa Ringerfield, co-founder of the Outspoken Women in Triathlon Summit. We are really excited to announce that the Outspoken Summit will be returning in 2021. This year has created an opportunity for triathletes to get back in the blocks and start to rebuild triathlon to create a more inclusive and welcoming space for all. Join us from the 12th to the 14th of November as we host a virtual summit to connect with like-minded women, center women's equity in the sport, hear from industry leaders, and develop leadership skills related to our roles in triathlon. The summit will provide a rich forum to develop strong voices, inspire others, and advocate for change in the sport we love. For more information and to sign up for the event, go to OutspokenSummit.com. We hope to see you there. The Unfazed Podcasts and all things Feisty Triathlon are grateful to be supported by Inside Tracker. Inside Tracker cuts through the noise of diet and wellness trends by analyzing your blood, DNA, and lifestyle to provide you a personalized, science-backed, trackable action plan on how to live, age, and perform better. Inside Tracker is a simpler, cheaper, and more convenient option than traditional blood tests, and their test includes biomarkers that are key to performance that you don't get from the traditional option. What we love about them? They don't just give you data, they provide you with nutrition and lifestyle tips to take action. Inside Tracker is offering 25% off their entire store to the Feisty Triathlon community. To claim your offer, go to insidetracker.com slash feistytriathlon. Unfazed, a podcast produced by Live Feisty Media and supported by the Outspoken Women in Triathlon Summit. Edited and produced by the fabulous Lindsay Glassford. Email us at info at unfazedpodcast.com and find us on social at try to defy at Dr. Gold Speaks or at Outspoken Women in Tri.
I'm Lisa. I'm Shauna. Thanks for listening. Stay unfazed, folks. See you next time.